First on film and entertainment, another most exciting week in many regards. No Commonwealth Games to talk about, but there is something of significance that we must talk about, Dave. This is Dave Griffiths. This is Peter Krause. Dave, you and I are going to discuss whether the head is sacrosanct. Peter, surely you'd agree, even though you don't care two hoots about sport, that the head should not be hit, correct? Oh, I agree. Salman Rushdie should not have been attacked. He should not have been attacked. Totally agree. I mean, that was reprehensible. This is, I suppose, significant in another way on a football field. It was a bit of a, I don't understand this. The Australian Football League has made it perfectly clear that concussion is not to be toyed with. Head knocks must be stamped out. You then have a situation where somebody, I understand he didn't mean to do it, but he hit somebody so hard that he was concussed and he's not going to be playing for a couple of weeks. And he's immediately rubbed out for two weeks. And then an appeals tribunal on a technicality lets him off and the AFL doesn't go and say, all right, well, why don't we appeal the decision of the appeal court? Can you explain that to me, please, Dave? Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. But I've I've long been someone who's thought that when there's an accidental knock to the head, it shouldn't be any more than a free kick because accidents happen. Um, and in this case, it was clearly an accident, but the um, AFL lawyer stuffed it up by not asking the question, was it intentional? Talking about accidents, something that was not was the opening night of the Melbourne International Film Festival, which is on as we speak. And I believe all three of us have seen the opening night movie, which was screened as a question and answer session a few days later. It's called Of An Age. So let's start there. This one is told in two timeframes, and it is a very sensitive coming-of-age drama. We're talking about 1999, so let's cast our minds back, what, that's 23 years ago. And a character called Cole, played by Elias Anton, is three weeks from turning 19 years of age. He and, well, he's friends with a hyperactive young woman called Ebony, played by Hattie Hook, who wakes up by the water's edge at a beach in Altona, dazed and confused. She uses a payphone to put in a desperate call to Cole to fetch her so they can get to the final of a ballroom dancing competition that they are meant to be a part of. But try as he does, that is Cole does, by calling upon Ebony's older brother Adam, played by Tom Green, to assist, unfortunately it's too late. And she's in no fit state to do anything, to be quite candid, regardless of the fact that the pair is out of time to compete in that competition. Cole was born in Serbia arrived in Australia at the age of 12, and he finds himself bonding with the sister of, with the brother, rather, of Ebony. His name, of course, is Adam, as I just mentioned, over literature and music. Adam, well, he's intelligent, he's gentle, he's caring. Cole is quite intrigued, even more so when Adam makes it known that he's gay. And in a matter of a few hours, the pair falls hard for one another. But then Adam has to leave the country because he's studying abroad for his PhD. Circumstances see them meet up again 11 years later. This is of an age. I thought it was brilliantly conceived and executed by the writer and director Goran Stolevsky. And he takes us on a walk down memory lane reflecting the late 1990s. He, he sort of readily moves between frenzied and thoughtful when it comes to the three key figures in the movie. And I, I should add that Melbourne, in my mind, is like another character in the film. The judgment passed on our fair city is not all that flattering, is it, Dave? No, it's not. But I, I thought this was a an amazing film. I love the the naturalistic feel of the dialogue that happens between um, between Cole and also Adam. It's that scene in the car. It, it goes for so long, and normally you would notice that in a film. I did not notice it. I thought it felt like you were almost watching reality TV with just a camera mounted in a car with two guys talking. It was amazing how natural the film felt. Um, there was a few comedic kind of elements in there as well, especially around the character 
of Ebony, but it's one of those movies where you sit there and you realize that how just how difficult it is for guys like um, Adam and Cole, um, especially with coming to terms with their sexuality. It's such an amazing film. It was so natural and it just felt like I was there with those guys the entire time. Great sense of empathy in terms of the characterizations of Colin Adam. And I thought, too, the, the actors do a magnificent job. Green's this real charmer as the, the patient Adam and the naivete and enthusiasm of youth distinguishes Anton. I, I really thought that, that that was really what stood out for me. And I, when you think about it, the third cog in the wheel, the, the young lady, Hook is, is simply, uh, she's a hoot as the narcissistic Ebony, the, the, the sister of uh, Adam. Peals of audience laughter ring out every time she was on the screen. Did you like it, Peter? I did very much so. I, I thought the, the whole cultural identity, sexuality, and the, the sort of semi-comic relief that uh, the uh, the young woman provided with her uh, upcoming nuptials, etc., was uh, was actually quite nicely observed without being over the top. It's great to see that uh, the Melbourne International Film Festival is focusing so strongly this year, uh, as they do often, on Australian cinema, and I thought this was a very good choice for the opening night film. So, uh, yes, uh, the uh, the whole uh, naturalistic sort of uh, uh, dialogue and observation uh, that was made during the film, the, uh, the issues of um, having a culture that frowns upon um, sort of uh, uh, homosexuality, the Serbian sort of culture, um, and, and the tentative ways of exploring relationships uh, in difficult circumstances and yet still letting the heart, uh, if you like, take over. Um, so, look, a, a very impressive film, nicely shot, um, a lot of handheld camera work, which tends to be de rigueur for a, a lot of Australian cinema, but that's okay. I I was happy to, uh, to go with that. And, uh, again, quite rightly, the observations about Melbourne are the lesser well-known uh, aspects of uh, Melbourne and its environs. And uh, I thought, overall, uh, a very impressive, nicely observed and well-made film. You talked about the cinematography. Matthew Chung is the man responsible. He's done a great job. The, cl the close-up cinematography in particular. Dave, you referenced the travel, the car, and that's basically when Adam and Cole get to know one another as they are travelling to rescue Adam's sister. That, that's when we, we really get to know both of the characters in, in more detail. There's also a really evocative score. That's something else that I should mention. Uh, the, we, we really get to know the 90s, the music and all that sort of stuff again. The, the only issue I had was with a lack of clarity of sound. I'm not sure whether you guys picked pick that up or not, but it really bothered me. The dialogue was at times muffled, which I didn't understand. I, I'm not sure what, why that should be. The, the score is one thing, the music is one thing, but surely when you're speaking, you should be able to hear what they're saying. Did either of you get troubled by that? My wife and I just, we were, we were looking at each other thinking, what? What are they actually saying? Yes, I, I have to comment on that because you're absolutely right. In Hamer Hall, which was the uh, venue for the opening night of Myth, um, the sound doesn't resonate so well across the auditorium. And I noticed that it can bounce off different areas and it makes it sound as if it's muffled. And I've had that experience before uh, in uh, in Hamer Hall. You have to be sitting uh, in, the, in the front stalls where the speakers are largely pitched. Uh, to be able to counteract some of that muffling. But, yes, overall, I agree, the the sound shouldn't have been uh, in that sort of situation as muffled as it was. But I didn't see it there. I, got, I was fortunate to receive the opening night uh, invitation, but I chose to go at a later stage when there was a question-answer session, which I'll talk about in a moment. This was at the beautiful Capitol Theatre in Swanson Street. That was where the sound was muffled too. So... Ah. So clearly it's not it's not the venue, it's the actual film. Dave, what about you? Yeah, I did notice it early on, but I find that with my hearing, if it's something like that, it adapts to it. So I noticed it for about the first five, ten minutes, and then 
my hearing kind of tuned into what what was going on on the screen. Yeah, I just didn't think it was up to scratch. I didn't think it was up to professional standard. That that's as far as I'm going to go because, to the best of my knowledge, my wife and I don't have a hearing issue. So if we don't have a hearing issue, then the only thing I can put it down to is the film itself. So anyway, that could, that could certainly have been improved. Did either of you see or hear the the Q and A that followed or not? No. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, you did. I thought that was terrific. The the director, Goran Slavensky, comes across as such a genuine, heartfelt sort of fellow, no tickets on himself whatsoever. And this is one of two of his movies that are in the Melbourne International Film Festival. I mean, wow. I mean, what an announcement. And and as you say, what an appropriate film for an opening night film. Uh, terrific. I mean, overall, it really is a, a film of maturity uh, adroitly handled with warmth and compassion, and uh, I would commend of an age to people who traditionally would not go along and see a film that's got a gay theme. But you think about Brokeback Mountain, which is obviously a more sophisticated movie, a more you know a lot, lot higher budget. But you know that that was something that resonated with people who were heterosexual, homosexual, and any other form of sexuality of an age has a similar broad-based appeal as far as I'm concerned. What do you reckon, Dave? Yeah, I agree. Goran is going to be an absolutely fantastic director. He's in that kind of vein of Alkinos, Tolomidos, Anna Kokonos. Um, he knows how to tell Australian stories, but he knows how to tell them in such a way that they're not Hollywoodized in the in the slightest, and I like that. I The directors that I mentioned before, they're very good at making Australian films in the sense that they are Australian stories being told, and I really think that Goran's going to go into that vein as well. He's absolutely, he's going to learn more and more as he goes on, of course, like all good directors. But, uh, yeah, and director to watch in the future. Absolutely. Peter, let me get a score out of 10 for Of An Age, please. Yes, it's a very good film. I gave it 8 out of 10. And Dave? I'm giving it 9 out of 10. I really, really loved it. And I'm giving it a seven and a half to eight. It would have received a higher mark if not for the sound. So, yeah, we, we are in agreement. And MIF, of course, continues. I think what's the 21st, isn't it, that it uh, continues till? 21st. Yeah, and MIF play goes until the 28th. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm not going to spend more time on – well, we are. We are. We will spend time on one more MIF film that I, I know, Peter, you haven't had the chance to see yet, but Dave, you and I have, and that's the documentary on David Bowie's life. Now. Let me start with a trivial pursuit question. What was David Bowie's actual name? Hmm, there you go. Because it, was, it wasn't David Bowie. Uh, does it, in, Peter, you, you can jump in here. Uh, no, no, I can't think of it. David Robert Jones. There you go. So Bowie is a lot more exotic. But, but, you know, you can have a stage name. Why not? So I was going to say Jones because his son, of course, is a film director, Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, but, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that too many people would know that unless they sort of Googled it. He was born on the 8th of January 1947 and lived till the 10th of January 2016. So it's hard to believe that, wow, we're talking about six years ago that he's now passed away. I, I, I thought it was only yesterday. I, I mean... Really, it, it, I mean, unless unless my research has suggested that it is wrong, but has it been six years, Dave? Yeah, it has, but it feels it feels a lot closer because, of course, he recorded so many albums that he wanted to have uh, released after he'd passed away because he knew he was dying. He, yeah, so it does feel like he's still with us because we're still getting those albums. Yeah, exactly. Well, th this is a, a documentary called Moon Age Daydream, and it's on at MIF, and it will be released in cinemas in September. So it's an M-rated movie, and, well, it will be an M-rated movie at 140 minutes, so it's a long, long film. And it's unquestionable that he's a creative genius. Uh, the, the words safe and middle of the road, well, I'm afraid they didn't cut it with him because he was innovative. He pushed himself and he liked to live life on the edge and he also admires others that lived a similar lifestyle. And according to what is a family-endorsed documentary, he was heavily influenced by his older half-brother, Terry, who introduced him to outsiders. Now, I didn't know about that. Did you, Dave, prior to seeing this documentary? I did, but only because I've read so many books on Bowie over the years. Okay, well, more than anything, Bowie was curious about the world around him. 
he travelled extensively. He, he never liked to feel comfortable. And to that end, he moved countries regularly, lived in quite a number of out-of-the-way places. He was spiritual and, well, his output, unbelievable, prolific, not just as a singer-songwriter. It, it says in this documentary, by the age of 33, he'd released 17 albums, starred in two feature films, appeared in a Broadway play and was an accomplished painter and sculptor. I mean, what, what, who does that? Extraordinary. Musically, of course, he was adored and he drew huge crowds. Groupies were in tears. I th thought I was watching the Beatles, not David Bowie, uh, with some of the scenes here. Before it was fashionable to do so, Bowie declared himself bisexual because his look, of course, was androgynous and he proudly wore makeup and painted his nails. And you've got a lot of people in the crowds who sort of basically follow his lead. And through a catalogue of his songs, many of them global hits, his remarkable life story unfolds. He had an unremarkable childhood, but clearly he had a thirst for knowledge and understanding from an early age, and he embraced difference. So all the colour, all the glamour on show in Moon Age Daydream, as well as the adoring concert crowds, and so too some of the quieter moments. Throughout, we actually hear Bowie's thoughts through a series of interviews, and, and we note how his opinions changed over time. So the man that he was in his early 20s wasn't the man that he was in his mid-30s. And then, then, of course, life took a significant turn when he met and later married his wife, Iman, at the age of 45. I, I briefly looked at my watch at that time. We'd already gone for almost two hours when Iman was first introduced into this doco, and the reference only appears briefly towards the tail end, as I mentioned, of what is a quite compelling documentary day. Yeah, it is. It's an absolutely amazing documentary. It, it doesn't even feel like a documentary for most of it, and that's because Brett Morgan, who I actually sat down and interviewed this week, wanted this to be an experience for Bowie fans. He didn't just want it to be a documentary. And as a result, he's kind of cut video clips for a lot of Bowie's songs that are different to what the original video clips were. So you, while you're watching this film and you hear Bowie's music, you see video uh, bits of video from uh, Fantasia and other movies and television shows and just images cut into the actual tracks. Uh, Morgan's done an absolutely amazing job here. I said that in my review that it didn't feel like a doco, it felt like an experience, but it also feels like Morgan's put together this massive jigsaw puzzle and created something so beautiful and so special that it's not surprising that Bowie's family endorsed it because it felt like the kind of experimental theatre and experimental film that Bowie himself would do. You just can't help but admire the man. He maintained a pace that few others could, made an indelible mark on the world, touched so many people. And, okay, yeah, there is a message here. It's pretty clear. Life's transitory, so it's what we do with it that counts. And Bowie clearly loved the rich and colourful existence that he had. He was constantly pushing, pushing himself into areas that he knew nothing about and then knew more about it and then moved somewhere else and moved on to something else. So it's it's quite visually arresting as a, as a documentary, Moon Age Daydream, and it's got a really dynamic score. Well, that's what you'd expect, of course. And it, as you said, it's written and directed by Brett Morgan. One thing I would say, the start could have been pared back, Dave. It took quite a while for us to actually hear from Bowie himself because there were the music clips and so forth. And I, I'm not sure how many minutes in it was, but like 15 or 20 minutes in, once we'd gone through that introduction, after that I was riveted. And I say that as somebody who admired Bowie, but I, I wouldn't consider myself an aficionado. I just, I, I, I wanted more and I, I got the more, but I just thought, I thought the start wasn't as strong as it could have been. Yeah, it did. It took a while to get into it. And it almost felt like a concert in a sense, because it yeah. had all that imagery of the moon and everything like that, which of course is something that is synonymous with David Bowie. But uh yeah, it was a bit of a slow opening, and then and then bang, it just hit. Correct. Um, and I didn't even notice the length. I had a lot of people saying to me beforehand, oh, this is going to be a really long film. I didn't notice the length. I was totally engrossed in listening to every word that Bowie said, and I think that's something unusual about this film as well is that it's a, a documentary about someone who has passed on, but 
it's narrated by them um, in this particular yes. way that Morgan's been able to do that. And I think that makes the documentary a whole lot better. There's no sit-down interviews with family and friends saying, oh, David did this and David did that. Nearly all of the interviews are actual interviews with David Bowie as well, which I just think it, it's a must-see for Bowie fans. Well, it, it is indeed, but it's even for non-Bowie fans like me. As I say, I like some of his music, but I, you know, I, I wasn't an, an acolyte. So, I mean, I, I did notice the length uh, because of the beginning, because I think they could have trimmed fifteen or twenty minutes off it. Because after that, as you say, went bam, and then yeah, transfixed at, at, at that point. So, I'm not sure why they introduced it the way that they did, or why the the writer and director did. But other than that, I thought it was a very, very strong documentary. Score out of 10 for Moon Age Daydream, which is on now as part of Myth. Dave? I'm going to give it 8 out of 10. And just a, a little bit of trivia as well about this film. Brett Morgan didn't know how to start the film originally and decided the only way he could write it was do what Bowie did and escape the world. And he actually wrote the entire thing traveling on Amtrak's American trains around America. Why? What, does he like trains? No, he just he needed everything to be moving and everything to be changing for him by the second so that he could get into that same frame of mind as what Bowie did. So he said he cut the tracks that he wanted, made himself a playlist, and then sat on the train and listened to them and travelled and then got the idea for what visuals would go with those tracks. Oh, okay. Now, I only want names and recommendations and brickbats and, uh, and bouquets. So... In terms of other myth films that you gentlemen have seen, I don't want reviews. I simply want recommendations or non-recommendations. Peter, yes, no. What would you say? Uh, a, a few I can recommend. One is Amiel Corton Wilson's new film, uh, Man on Earth, which is a documentary, uh, which is uh, quite immersive and uh, uh, about end-of-life uh, situation. And uh, also Senses of mm. Cinema. Uh, is an impressive documentary about the underground film movement uh, in Australia, Sydney and Melbourne in particular, from the 60s to the 80s. So they're two films I certainly recommend. Any you don't recommend? I haven't seen anything yet that I didn't like, so which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. And what about you, Dave? Um, the Stranger is still my favourite that I've seen so far. Um the Joel Edgerton-led uh, Thomas M. Wright film, which is just an amazing film. Um, I also enjoyed You Won't Be Alone, um, which is a, a new kind of Aussie-slash-Serbian horror starring Numi Rapace. Absolutely amazing film if you like uh, mythical folklore. Uh, but my favourite so far of the festival has been Burning Days, the Turkish film, um, an amazing kind of crime thriller um, so if you like good crime thrillers and you and you like uh, cinema from from foreign in foreign language, that's one to go and see. And those to avoid? Uh, I haven't seen any that I would say to avoid so far. Fabulous, both of you are very nice. You are with Peter Krause, you are with Dave Griffiths and Alex First, and we are going to talk about the big cinema release of the week, which is called Nope. N O P E. Two hours, 10 minutes, M-rated. And I would start by saying, no way. Give it a miss. Nope. Jordan Peele's latest foray into the horror sci-fi genre is a waste of time and space. Senseless, amateurish, elongated blancmange, which I found difficult to sit through. And I do say that as someone who thought that Get Out was something special, which was, of course, Jordan Peele's entree as a director. So... O.J. Haywood, played by Daniel Kaluuya's father, Otis Jr., Keith David plays Otis Sr., dies in bizarre circumstances. He's just broken in a horse on his ranch outside Los Angeles. And then this incident involves or appears to come from the heavens and is precipitated by a strange stillness. And Otis Sr. was an animal wrangler on movie sets. Now his son and daughter, daughter played by Keki Palmer, known as Emerald, They've taken over the business. Mind you, OJ, OJ Haywood, is not a big talker, certainly not a front man. Emerald is flighty. The financial challenges of maintaining the ranch have seen OJ sell off prized horses 
on the ranch to the owner of a nearby family theme park, whose name is Ricky Jupe Park, played by Stephen Yuen. Park was a former child star, and there was a violent incident in his past that still haunts him today. So now you've got this mysterious malevolent force continuing to threaten OJ and Emerald, a force that they can't run from as much as they try. And it takes the form of a UFO that triggers massive wind, rain and cascading torrents of blood. What the? I, okay, you've got the influence of Steven Spielberg, that's evident. You've got Westerns, yeah, that's fine. But the packaging does not work. Daniel Kaluuya, who I really usually enjoy immensely, mum, mumbles his way, my voice is gone, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, through the dialogue in an all but catatonic state. And apart from expressing alarm and racing around like an energizer bunny, I, I can't say that Keki Palmer had a great hand in progressing the story either. And the, the other thing I'd say about it, the vision of this UFO, uh, surely it must be a joke. I mean, Dave, you and I spoke about it after the movie. It looks like this stingray with a vacuum cleaner underbelly. So Yeah, it looks like that? something that a kid's art class made out of crepe paper at one point. Exactly. So uh, this this nope is uninspiring, dull, lacking in interest or merit, grave disappointment, and all the more so because it went on for far, 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 far too long. And, you know, you go into the cinema with hope and anticipation. I left so deflated by this. Uh, Peter, you'll, you'll probably be the recalcitrant one and say, oh, this is a masterpiece, but it's not. It's a piece of, yes, go on, you tell me your thoughts. Okay, uh, let, let's talk about this film because it has a number of elements in it which don't completely cohere and it raises more questions than provides narrative answers. So is that good or bad, Peter? It depends because there are... there are. Is it good it, or bad? I, I don't want to make that pronouncement just yet because I want to talk about some of the elements. Um, I want to talk about, as you've mentioned, Spielbergian influences about um, uh, some sort of UFO, some sort of uh, uh, otherworldly thing that is uh, looking uh, in a small area of the US to uh, suck up people so to speak, into its vortex. So the question is why? Why that uh, environment? Why that location? Secondly, the role of horses and the role of Edward Mybridge, who is a very important chromatograph uh, cinematographer in the 19th century. You better explain chromatograph because there'll be people who don't know what that is. It, it's moving photographs. So it's photographs that are, uh, are put together that look as if they are moving, as if uh, you're seeing it in a cinema, that uh, it's a moving image. And so it's uh, it's horses moving with a rider on it. And uh, and he was a, uh, a man of colour, uh, uh, an African-American man, who's been sort of brushed out of cinema history. And so this film tries to address that by the role of the horses and by the role of the uh, brief uh, footage that we see uh, of Edward Mybridge. Then we have the whole issue of the chimpanzee and it, the violence that it, it wreaks. Um, and I mean, I suppose we should reference the fact that this is the tragedy that occurred to Ricky Jupe Park yes. with, without going into further detail. No, no, and I'm not going to say too much, but it's set in a TV studio. What's the point there? So I'm, I'm trying to work out what Jordan Peele was trying to tell us, uh, whether he was making a satire, whether he was making a joke for the audience so that at the end of the film he will say to everyone, ha-ha, gotcha, <laughs> or whether he's doing an M. Night Shyamalan and having these sort of twists and turns in the plot that don't necessarily cohere until the very end. And in this case, it doesn't even necessarily cohere at the end of this film either. And that's um, the problem that I have with it. I mean, it, ultimately, you can be too clever by halves. And I reckon that's what's happened here. He's, he's tried to be deep and meaningful, and instead he's lost half the audience, maybe three quarters or maybe seven eighths. 
Look, I think it's a film that deserves further analysis. That's why I'm not uh, too well, black, but, but hang on, black and white about, about it. But wait a second. If you have to speak to the director in terms of, well, what's it all about? Why are you doing it this way, etc.? Okay, you can see that you've been inspired by other filmmakers and history and so on, and that's commendable. But if you go along and you want there to be some semblance of sense here and that confusion between something that's childlike in terms of creating this absolutely, well, pathetic UFO, you know, com compared to some of the other stuff that's far more sophisticated, why? I, I, you're left with more questions than answers, and I just don't think that's adequate. I'm sorry. Does all artwork have an easy answer or no. easy explanation? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But there are some things that go on and on. I mean, you, you think about the Tree of Life, which I thought was appalling. And some people thought it was a masterpiece and won, won the, the best film at Cannes a few a years. Great, a great film, yes. Yeah, and I, I couldn't stand it. I, I, my, my, I was scratching blackboards with my metaphorical blackboard in front of me. You know, I mean, I, and, and I know other people who've felt the same way as me. I mean, you, you like far more bizarre stuff than, than I do. And, but I don't mind being stretched, but I want there to be a, a point. I, and I... I'm still not clear what the point is. Dave, do you know what the point of Nope is? Not really. I like I thought that the whole thing with the chimpanzee was to um to put in a metaphor for you can never really tame the beast. I thought that was uh the whole idea. But I also thought there was a lot a, a few lines in there too that hinted at making money off the beast. So making money off the chimpanzee, making money off the horses that they breed. Um, trying to make money off this UFO, which is a living creature. So you're talking about trying to make money off the beast and that's never going to work because you can't tame a beast. But I just find this film ridiculous in the sense... I, I've always been kind of critical of Jordan Peele. I think he's an overrated actor, uh, director, sorry. I thought Get Out kind of tripped itself up too many times. I thought Us was a complete mess of a film. And I think this movie kind of exposes that. But having said that, I enjoyed the first three quarters of this film more than I did Get Out and Us. It was the ending that really wrecked it for me. Once that reveal was there with the creature um, and it looked so bad, that lost me. I thought that he lost control of the film in the last quarter. All of his metaphors and subplots went out the window and it just became a, a really bad uh, B, C-grade movie that would normally have gone straight to DVD. Yep, I, I would totally agree. I mean, look, I, I, I thought at the end, the only thing that was in my head was, nope, nicks, yet nothing worth seeing here. And, I, I mean, okay, some creativity, some points for creativity. I'm giving nope, which is M-rated and runs for two hours and ten minutes, a four out of ten. Dave? I'm giving it a six out of ten. I did like the first three quarters, but I thought Peel lost control of the film. Peter, not of planet Earth. Is that what Nope stands for? And there's some conjecture about that. And uh, I agree about the issue of the beast and taming the beast. I think that there are elements that run through that. I think that it's a film of ideas. It doesn't cohere necessarily, but it's a film that deserves to be seen and discussed and argued about, just like good artwork that doesn't necessarily dot all the I's and cross all the T's. So I give this film seven out of ten. Let's move on, Jair, to a very disturbing documentary called The Conference. But it's not a documentary. It's, it, it is a narrative feature that has the look and feel of a documentary. And it's 107 minutes, it's M-rated, and it's based on actuality. It's based on the recorded minutes of what is probably the, the, a conference unlike any other in history and the worst, most barbaric conference that I could possibly imagine. We're talking about the 20th of January, 1942. High-ranking Nazi officials meet at a mansion southwest of Berlin to plot what was known as the final solution to the Jewish question. And that involved 90 minutes of discussion about how to rid Europe of its remaining Jews. The purpose, of course, is to secure Aryan purity. Of course, the mass slaughter of Jews was already well in train. 
but the idea was to escalate this to a far higher level. The debate centred around efficiencies of scale, along with the method of elimination and disposal. And it involved a sweep of all Jews to what are called final solution spaces. Not all of those attending were in agreement because there were greater burdens on some than others. And a number were particularly hard-nosed, equating Jews with vermin. One spoke with authority about the success of the cleansing process in the territory for which he was responsible. Another concerned himself with the ammunition and time it would take to shoot dead, now wait for this, 11 million people. And, of course, we know that 6 million Jews died and gypsies and many others in the Holocaust. The psychological damage to those tasked with the responsibility of killing the Jews was also an issue that was discussed. And then a quicker, more robust system was canvassed and signed off. So this is, the conference is a fictionalised account of what is unquestionably the most horrific conference in history and follows the minutes of this meeting as recorded by Adolf Eichmann. Only one copy of that, the minutes, remains, and that's a key document pertaining to the Holocaust. Shocking to watch a group of men devoted to Hitler coldly discussing mass murder on a scale never before attempted. And during breaks, they tuck into delicacies. I mean, yeah, you, you look at that, you you, you just, uh, it, it, it just, it, it makes your heart go cold. It's heavily dialogue driven. And I reckon most will find what unfolds incredibly hard to stomach. And so they should. As a reflection of history, it's shocking to contemplate. Also important to note and appreciate so that something like this is never allowed to happen again. And what struck me most was the mercenary characterisation by many of the actors lurching towards gleeful, and obviously that was purposeful. The writers, the director, they've crafted a truly devastating but an important work because, I mean, these, these are not human beings who, who, do, who discuss things in the way that they discuss them. I, I just... I mean, it's a very, very, very hard watch. And for those people who don't like, I mean, they're in a conference room for most of this time. And then there's anti rooms and so forth. So that in itself is not going to be everybody's cup of tea. But it's fantastic that they have recorded this. So the, the oppression of the Nazi regime, the barbarity of the regime is just laid bare. And, and that's the point of all of this. It's called the conference. Peter, you start. Look, I, I was able to visit Wannsee, which is the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the destination of the conference, which is a seaside resort about three quarters of an hour from the centre of Berlin. And uh, obviously walking around the area, seeing some of the buildings that have survived, etc., uh, is just uh, an incredible sensation uh, and experience. What Matti Gershonik has done, uh, an East German director who's made a number of uh, very good um, art house films uh, has he has made this as a very clinical approach to this uh, conference about the final solution and what he's done is he's really uh, directed this in a very clinical and carefully uh, constructed sort of way to demonstrate the horrors without going over the top without uh, having any histrionics or anything like that uh, and in fact in in the way that uh, each of these Nazis discuss uh, bringing millions of people um, to their death uh, in, in such a, a sort of a pleasant atmosphere of, uh, of tea and coffee and cake and all that sort of thing uh, exacerbates, I think, the horror, as you've described, of the situation. It's very well directed. Uh, it's, uh, uh, the acting is uh, finely attuned. The, uh, the characterizations are so well uh, performed by the various actors to portray the range of Nazis who were in the front line of determining this final solution. Um, And it's a a major highlight for me, a film that must be seen, um, not to be enjoyed, of course, but to be 
savored for what was a major process that was happening uh, by the National Socialists in the 1940s. So a highly recommended film. Well, I mean, it, it, it's not a documentary, but it's got the documentary feel. So it's a fictionalised account because you don't know where people are, you know, walking or whatever. So that it, they're, they're, it's, but it has got that documentary feel, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It does. So that's where I meant that clinical approach. It is narrative, of course, but uh, it is based on much of the uh, original um, uh, minutes and documents that were available at the time. Dave, what did you think of me? Yeah, I was surprised how difficult I found to watch this film. Um, I love horror. It's one of my favourite genres, and I can sit down and watch a, a movie about a psycho massacring an entire family and not blink an eyelid. But this movie, I found it really, really difficult to watch. Um, like Peter said, it's so clinical, and the way that the the different characters uh, just come out with lines like, like you said, I uh, do you know how difficult it would be to shoot a million people that way. I found it really, really difficult to watch. And I think the reason I found it so difficult to watch is that when I watch a horror movie, I know it's not real. Yeah. When I watch this, I know that this really happened. And I know that this was a, a, a meeting that led to my grandmother having to flee um, Europe to escape this. So it really, it, it hit me hard watching this film. I'll, I'll admit that it was a difficult watch, but at the same time, I think it it helped me understand more as well. To be honest, I found this a more difficult watch than what I did Schindler's List, um, simply because of the fact that these um, people were real people and being so matter of fact about what they were talking about. But at the same time, I take my hat off to the director because the director has done a fantastic job. I, I feel that the the, the fact that this movie was difficult for me to watch comes from the brilliance of the screenwriter and the director. So, yeah, a hard watch, but I think an important film for people to watch as well. I, I One day I, I wish that you would go and visit Yad Vashem, which is the World Holocaust Remembrance Centre, and th that changes you and it should change you. And, and people, Jews, non-Jews, people who care about the world and care about their fellow man, and I mean that generically, should should go to Yad Vashem because, and, and this is not like that, but it, it it's part and parcel of, this is where people who are Holocaust deniers and so forth, I've got absolutely no time for any of them because this was just chilling. So I agree, it's a film that needs to be seen. Anybody who sits there and watches it will find it hard to sit through. It's a film that I'm giving an eight out of ten to. What What about you, Peter? Uh, look, uh, the same mark. Can I just mention also the uh, in Berlin, the Holocaust Memorial uh, is absolutely incredible. Walking through those blocks of stone uh, and marble and experiencing what the the, the 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 multiple deaths obviously that happened at the time. Ah, just incredible. Anyway, uh, eight out of ten for the conference. And what yes. about you, Dave? Yeah, eight out of ten from me as well. And of course, if you can't travel overseas, the Holocaust Museum in Elstonwick is um, is a a place to go and visit as well. I remember going there as a teenager, and um, yeah, just leaving a completely different person. Yeah, yeah, understood. Uh, by the way, we spoke about Salman Rushdie at uh, earlier in the program, and it's terrible what happened to him. It really is because I mean, you know, not only he's seventy five years of age, he had the fatwa on his life. Know, going back to the 1990s, and I mean, you know, it's some, it's one thing that, he, and and he's he's for the, I think it was nine years after that he, he just didn't go out in public at all. Now he's delivering speeches and so forth, and you know this this attack that lasted what whatever it was, 20 or 30 seconds or however long it was before people got there in terms of the stabbing, and uh, it, it, he's going to likely lose an eye, his nerves in his arm have been severed liver was stabbed and damaged. I, you know, what sort of people do this? What sort of people? It, it's just, it, it's, you know, we're talking about the horrors of the, the Holocaust. And, and this, this isn't the Holocaust, but it's people's intolerance. And uh, I mean, it's it just, again, I shake my head in disbelief. We've talked about four movies. I wanted to talk about, in fact, I, I mentioned this last week, and I don't think I had time to go into the, you tell me, guys, I, I don't think I went into the, the full detail of it. 
which was the, the, the Jewish show that he's on at the moment, the importance of being Jewish. I think, <clears throat> pardon me, I referenced it, but I didn't go into the fine detail. This is a romp, uh, and it showcases playwright called Rob Zeltzer, his insight and wit. It's on, by the way, at Salt Pillar Theatre at Phoenix Theatre in Elwood. And for the past 30 years, an architect by the name of Ray, played by Joe Tiggle, has been happily married to a couples therapist called Roche, played by Natalie Shostak. These people are social Jews, as distinct from religious, but they're delighted their strong-willed lawyer daughter Tara, played by Romy, Romy Friedman, is about to marry a fellow Jew. Israeli Leo, Mickey Palti, has a doctorate in computer science. He's the going to be the groom. And he's the son of Ilan, Ral Salter, who runs a successful laundry business, and his wife, Kitty, Amelia Frid. Ilan and Kitty, they've travelled from Tel Aviv for the first get-together with Ray and Roche. So if you like the two sets of in-laws. When Ray sets eyes upon Kitty, who keeps kosher and converted from Catholicism, there is immediate recognition. And it's quickly clear why that is. Then the question becomes how much Ray's wife needs to know. To keep the peace, Ray believes in selective truth. Hijinks abound because the wedding itself then is in peril. So the importance of being Jewish, it's a light-hearted, feel-good piece of entertainment and it deals with Jewish stereotypes. Zeltzer the writer and co-director has infused the work with some choice one-liners that generate plenty of laughs. It's material the cast can have fun with, and, and they do. Exaggerated personas are the name of the game. Rounding out the seven-person troupe is Daniel Teitelbaum as the rollerblading young rabbi known as BB, capital B, capital B. His ruling will be crucial if Tara and Leo are to proceed with the planned, traditional, over-the-top Jewish wedding. Pick of the performers, Natalie Shostak. I thought her style and delivery as Rosh were most impressive. And I also appreciated the take on Kitty by Amelia Frid. Set design is by David Lampard, and it transports us to the heart of the action. So that could be the backyard Barbie, the dining room, the lounge, the kitchen. All of these are captured in a single large set the centrepiece of which is a another large framed print of Ray and Roche on their wedding day. It's co-directed by Rob Zeltzer and Stephen Curtis, input from a couple of creative advisors, Gary Abrahams and Pip Mushin. It's characterised the importance of being Jewish with lively levity. 70 minutes plus a 20-minute interval, as I said, playing at Phoenix Theatre in Elwood until the 21st of August. And by the way, while you're going, Pick up a copy of free, and it is free, excellent, glossy, full-colour program, which can also be downloaded. The importance of being Jewish. So one to seriously consider. I went along last night to a, a remarkable play. Now, do either of you know the story of Medea? I'm curious. Peter? Uh, vaguely, I remember the uh, the Greek uh, heritage yeah. of that. Yes. Yeah, and and Dave. Yeah, the same as Peter, just the Greek heritage of it. Well, you've never seen anything quite like this. It's called Medea Out of the Mouths of Babes, and it's on at Theatre Works in St Kilda. Superb creative staging of this Greek tragedy. Knowledge of the story before entering the theatre would be a distinct advantage. And to say that I was excited by what I saw is a gross understatement. I was ecstatic. It's one of the most remarkable productions I've had the privilege of reviewing. So Euripides, who lived from 480 to 406, well, in, there's, there's terminology for this, but uh, he, he's been, his writing has been contemporised. And how? Uh, the, the plot remains, it, it's, to some it's known as 480 to 406 BC, but to Jews it's not known as BC and there's another reference to it. But I, I just want to give you a, a historic time frame. Um, so it's been contemporised. Now, the plot remains the same, but the way it's been packaged, it's bold, it's brazen, it's relevant to modern pop culture. And as a result, it's readily relatable for Generation Z. So it's a play about revenge. Jason, played by Paolo Bartolome is looking to improve his station in life by abandoning his barbarian wife and marrying a princess. Medea, played by Willow Sizer, is distraught. 
Jason has left her and their two children to be with Glauca, who's the daughter of Creon, played by Emily Joy, and Creon is the king of the Greek city of Corinth, which is where the play is set. Fearing Medea, Creon banishes her and the kids from the city, but they're given one day's grace, and that gives Medea ample opportunity to plot and execute a truly dastardly deed. So that's the original story. The modern treatment of Medea was informed by children. So they, they were told the story and they wanted to know how best to execute it. And what the troupe has done as a result is astonishing. We learn the story of what's gone down via a present-day trashy tabloid television news show where the hosts call upon the services of a self-promoting clairvoyant to provide insight. Each of the three actors play multiple roles, all shine through their audaciousness. The writers, Chris Becky, the writer and director Stephen Mitchell Wright, Ian Johnson's another writer, Belle Hansen, Enya Daly and the ensemble all have had a hand in the written script. They've helped create a new masterwork. That would not have been possible without the efforts of the video artists, the designers, the sound technician, each of whom make invaluable contributions. Staging's phenomenal. Stage and production manager is Holly Anderson. 11 video screens of different sizes form a semicircle around a rotating stage, and onto them is projected evocative imagery. So you've got dollops of colour, you've got children's drawings, and a lot more. And the set's given a Roman look by virtue of four columns, two on either side of the stage, and a large rocky wall centrepiece, atop of which sits a giant video screen. So add in real-time video, a real-time video feed, and pre-recorded material showing Medea and Jason exchanging marriage vows, and you've got this phenomenal multidisciplinary offering. The costuming, funky, showy, colourful, stands out for all the right reasons. And all up, the enormous effort, which has clearly gone into creating Medea out of the mouths of babes, pays off handsomely. I sat there gobsmacked. It's unmissable, sizzling theatre, the likes of which is scarce. You do not see this stuff. I mean, it's that good. It really is something mighty special. And lots of school groups have gone to see it. Some of the language is very, I mean, the F word is liberally dropped. So, you know, it's got an MA rating kind of thing for, for very good reason. But it's been created from the thoughts of children. What a, what a remarkable piece of work it is. Dave, if you get the chance to see it, go. It's just amazing. It really is. It's, it's called, once again, Medea and then subtext out of the mouths of babes. So it's on at TheatreWorks until the 20th of August. So you've only got a few days left to see it. I would encourage all of you to do so because it's that good. Folks, we're at the end. I, I wish you well for the week, Peter. I, um, uh, you and I will be debating along with uh, hopefully Jackie Hamilton and Greg King and Dave Griffiths movies, theatre, entertainment and football next week. So you can you can uh, do some research ahead of that if you'd like. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Dave, Dave Griffiths, we'll, ne we'll never educate him, will we? No, we won't, no. Nah. But that, that's nice. That's what we love about Peter. Yes, yes. Grumble, <laughs> grumble, groan, groan. Um, may, may you have a good week. Be kind to one another. Go along and see some of the movies, see whether you agree with our thoughts and keep listening to J Air 88FM for hopefully engaging, entertaining and stimulating programming 24-7.